Okay, so I, I don't believe in buffets. I don't believe in buffets. They're, they're not good for me. I, I, uh, I can't do that. Except, except about once every year or two in, in the Amish country. And, and, then I, and, the, and then I make an exception and I go to a buffet and there's one of these buffets I'm thinking about right now, which I sh- you should never talk about food like this when you're trying to get to 12 o'clock without people thinking about food. But that just has everything a farm boy could ask for. I mean, you're talking about roast beef, you're talking about chicken, you're talking about mashed potatoes with gravy, about mashed potatoes with gravy, mashed potatoes with gravy. I just, uh, the text that we have today is like an amazing buffet of Christian truth, and all of it is good for you. All of it is good for you. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And verses 1 through 10. And today we get to talk about the difference that Jesus Christ makes in your life. Can I get a witness? Any, Jesus make a difference in anybody's life here today? Amen. He does. So we're gonna, we get to talk about that Ephesians chapter 1. i sorry. Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 1 through 10. We just sang the song Amazing Grace. And Chris has been singing that song for, for decades, for hundred, a couple hundred years. Singing Amazing Grace. We never get tired of the song, and we never get tired of amazing grace. Remember that old song they sang a few years ago, His Grace Still Amazes Me. And that's really what we're talking about here today. It's like, I, this is all we're going to do is like, when, when I was a boy, my mom and dad, they were just first-generation Christians. And so every way they could, they were given the gospel. They carried tracts with them wherever they went. My mom had Bible clubs after school. It was just gospel, 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 because they were just first-generation Christians, and they just wanted other people to have the, the life-changing experience they had. And I sometimes wonder, because I've been privileged to be led to the Lord by my parents as a sort of a second generation Christian, does grace still amaze me? Am I still thrilled about the gospel? Am I still stirred when I hear the gospel? Am I still fired up that I understand the gospel and that I have the mission to share the gospel with other people? Or has it gotten a little bit stale? And so today, just getting into the gospel here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, I hope it makes your heart be fast for God. I hope it thrills you again like a first-generation Christian. You get fired up again, and grace still amazes you when you study this today. So I'm going to read the text. It's Ephesians 2, and verses 1 through 10. And when you were a boy, if you were like me and your parents taught you, the, uh, or a little girl, and the, your parents taught you the Romans Road, how to explain the gospel from Romans, that's really helpful, right? How many of you learned the Romans Road? You've heard that? Raise your hand. If you've, uh, so you should learn that if you don't. But I would tell you this, you could go to Romans and you could lead people to Christ, but you could go to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, and it's right there, man. It is so, and it's such a beautiful God focus. So now we're reading after this long uh, there were two sentences in chapter 1. And the first sentence was a sentence of praise. And the second sentence was a sentence of prayer. And, 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 it was like the, and it was basically saying, these are all the things that are true of everyone who is in Christ. And then it says, and you ought to pray that you have an enlightenment to all the things that are true of everybody who is in Christ. Which ought to leave you with a question like, okay, so what does it mean to be in Christ and how do I get there? Right? What does that mean, and how do I get there? 
And verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2 are the answer, the clear, ringing, crystal clear, wonderful, heart-thumping answer to the question, what does it mean to be in Christ and how do I get there? Now I'm going to actually read the Bible. Okay, here we go. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What were you like before you came to know Christ as your Savior? Or if you haven't yet come to know Christ as your Savior, I want you to look at this slide, and what it does is it really lists who we are without Christ, right? Without Christ, we're dead. That's what the text is going to say. We'll look at that in a minute. Without Christ, we're in trespasses and sins. It's like we're in bondage to sin. Without Christ, we're, our, our whole world is this world, and we have no perspective on anything else. The, world, the, world that, the physical world that we're in, a distorted understanding of the reality, just the physical world dominates our life before we're in Christ. We have a nature Paul sometimes calls it the flesh. We have an old nature that just keeps dragging us down. And we're under God's just wrath because of our sin. And, and, and later in the text, you're going to see that you're kind of in bondage to works. You're on the, the kind of the, the, the hamster wheel, the, the treadmill of trying to please God. Look at the text. You see all these things in the first three verses, except for the last one there. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. What was it like before you became a follower of Jesus Christ and you were saved? You were spiritually dead. You're like, no, I wasn't dead. I was very much alive. I was like, no, you were spiritually, according to the Bible. Spiritually, you didn't have a pulse. Spiritually, you were completely dead. And what does that mean? What it means is all the wonderful things of God that a person should be alive to, you were dead to them. Uh, W.A. Criswell is with the Lord now. He was a great pastor of the First Baptist Church down in Dallas. And he preached on this text, and, and he used an illustration. He said he had gone to another country where they had a church service where it was in three languages. He didn't understand the first language, and the church service didn't really mean much to him. He didn't understand the second language, and the church service didn't mean much to him. But the third was in English, and it's the, only, it's the only language. He said when they started that service, he began to tremble, and he began to weep. He was alive to English. He was dead to those other languages. And before we knew the Lord, we were dead to all the good things that could make our, make our heart beat fast, all the things that are reality, that are true in Christ. We were dead to those things before we came to know the Lord. We were dead. 
and we were dead, the Bible says, in trespasses and sins. And a lot of theologians have tried to do some taxonomy on those words. But basically the sharpest of them are going to say it's a general statement, meaning all that really kind of draws us downward into sin, that dominated our lives. Sin dominated our lives. And sometimes, before you knew the Lord, your life was dominated by, you know, uh, fleshly indulgence. Other people, their life is dominated by the sin of pride or even religious sin, you know. So the men have looked so horrible, but still, it was willful ignorance of God, and before we knew the Lord, we were in sin. And notice the next one, the world. Look at verse 2. In which you once walk following the course of this world. In this text, you're going to see that kind of classical tri, uh, three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's not going to be in that order. Um, but you see this here. It's like if you have a downward tug on you, there, there are three possible sources of that. You know, the world around you is not friendly to God, so it's going to pull you down. And then the flesh, there's something within you that's not friendly to God, your flesh, your old nature, that's going to pull you down. And there's demonic activity around you, and that can pull you down. When I was a kid, I wanted to blame all that on the devil. Ultimately, it really was in his domain. I remember my mom pressed me really hard one time. Why did you do that? Why did you do that? Why did you do that? I'm like, it was the devil. My mom was like, pounced on that. It was not the devil, you know. My mom's theology was spot on, and she was all over it, you know. She's always been that way. But there, there are these three things. Before you knew the Lord, the world was the whole deal to you. This physical world and the things that you could see or spend or indulge in, whether they were like overtly, horribly uh, sinful or whether they were subtly sinful, before you knew the world or the Lord, the world was everything to you. That's the way we were. And then that's, there's that sin nature. Look, at, look what it says there. It says in verse 2, in, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature the children of wrath. In verse 3 there, what that's talking about is that downward tug that we have within us as unbelievers, we just have that old nature, that flesh. As believers, we even still have indwelling sin, but that's another story. Before we, have, before we knew the Lord, though, we didn't have the Holy Spirit living in us. We just had death, and we just had sin, and we just had bondage, and we, and we just had the flesh, the desires that pulled us down away from God. And we were under the influence of the devil. Backing up to verse 2, we shouldn't pass this. It says, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, which is a poetic reference to the devil, right? The prince of the power of the air. Because it goes on and says, this is the spirit that's now at work in all the people that are called sons of disobedience. A little bit later, we're going to be called children of wrath. The reason it says sons, the reason it says children is like you naturally bear resemblance to your parents. And the idea here is you're going, to re, you're going to bear resemblance to you're a child of sin, disobedience. You're a child of wrath. It's natural for you before you knew the Lord. So this isn't the way people tend to think. But the way people tend to think is that people are based, some people tend to think people are basically good. That's the way people tend to think. They don't really, these must be people who don't watch the evening news, right? People are basically good. That, or sometimes people say, well, okay, they're not basically good. They're just a little sick, Right? And it's tempting to think that. So it's tempting to think that when you think about people, it's tempting to think about us before we know the Lord or just common people to think, well, okay, they're, they're basically decent people. Or it's tempting to say, well, okay, they're a little bit sick. 
What the Bible says is they're not basically good, and they're not basically sick. They're dead. They're spiritually dead. So I tried to watch The Walking Dead, and I couldn't get past the first grotesque scene. Others of you who have stronger stomachs, I'm sure this has been very compelling to you. But they say the people, sorry walkers, they say the people, our zombies, are called walkers. Sorry about that, right? Is that what they call them? They call them walkers. Uh, that means they're dead, but they're still walking. And if they <laughs> get near you, you're going <laughs> to, I know what you're thinking right now. You're going, I do not believe he's using that as an illustration. <laughs> I'm totally innocent. I didn't watch it, right? I'm a good boy. I turned it off. I just heard about it from friends, close friends, deacons, you know what I'm saying? Anyway, <laughs> anyway, anyway, the walking dead. This is what the Bible is saying. You are the walking dead. You're dead and you're walking. You're doing dead stuff. And you're dangerous. You're dangerous to yourself and others. And you don't look very good either. I mean, in the spirit, if, if, if we saw ourselves in the spirit before Christ, we would be like, this is a horror. This is a great horror. We're full of death and full of flesh and full of sin and under control of the devil. It may look good, but that's just because Satan sometimes does terrible things and makes them look good. And that is true about us. This is all true. How many of you would like to get off of this subject? Raise your hand. Yeah, me too. Let's keep moving here. So let's do some English. I don't do this very often. But what's interesting is if you study this uh, carefully, you'll notice that it all kind of turns on a word, um, a part of speech, if you will. A part of speech that it turns on is a conjunction. It's the part in a sentence that kind of combines or contrasts or compares two different phrases. And chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 are one sentence in the original language, and in it is a conjunction. You know, the conjunction like and or, or at or because. In this, or in this case, the conjunction is the word but. It's in verse 4. All these bad things are true about us. We're under wrath of God. We're in bondage to works until you get to verse 4, and it's what I call the blessed conjunction, the beautiful conjunction. The word in verse 4 is but God. But God, and that changes everything. But God acted. These people, you and I, we were dead. We were in bondage. We were doing what the devil wanted us to do. We were in our sins. We were dead to God and everything that's beautiful. But God acted on our behalf. But God, that should give you a spiritual pulse right there. But God, look what it says. Because why? Because he was rich in mercy and because of the great love, not just love, but great love that he had for us. He looked down out of heaven and acted on our behalf. But God, even when we were dead in our trespasses, there's a, there's a, there are three things he says here, and Paul coins words that don't exist three times in the original language to, to, to describe our union with Christ. Because these are true with Christ, he's made them true of us. Because this is true of Christ, he's made it. Paul coins words that don't exist three times to put us with Christ, and here's where, he, where, where, and there's a little parenthetical statement too. I'm looking at verse five. Even when we were dead in trespasses, here's the first one, he made us alive together with Christ. And then he says, by grace you are saved. That's the parenthesis, by grace you are saved. But then he goes back to the thought, he raised us up with him, with Christ. And then the third one, he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What are these three things? So notice the three things are important, okay? He said he made us alive. What's that a reference to? When, did, when was Christ made alive? 
It's the resurrection. You're like, is this the right? It's absolutely, yeah. In the resurrection, that's what it's referring to. Paul is always doing that. If you will, that's his, that's his great, you know, kind of like, I want to say ace in the hole, but that doesn't sound right. It's just like, that's his thing he goes to. That's his powerful default in preaching. Hey, oh, and by the way, he rose from the dead. You throw that in, that's just like, that's the deal killer right there. Oh, he rose from the dead, by the way. And that's what he's doing. He said, Jesus rose from the dead, and, and, and Jesus pulls us into his life. So before we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we weren't alive to anything good, but because Jesus came to life and we believe in him, then our spirit comes to life and then we see things all around us that are full of life. We're Christians and we see life everywhere. We're life people. We're pro, come on now, pro-life. You pro-life? Yeah, you should be pro-life. In every way, you should be pro-life. Wherever you see it, why is that? Because we have the life of God in us like Jesus was raised from the dead. He gives to us a mystic resurrection that even theologians cannot describe. They can't. They all try. They can't. I'm just going, I'm not sure I understand that, but I am receiving it. You know, I'm alive with Christ. And then notice that it says, this alive with him, raised up with him, and then seated with him in heavenly places. And so when you have, what you have is, um, so, so let's just, what I want to show you today here is I want to show you um, some contrast, like what we were before and what we are now. Here's the first one. We were dead, and now we're alive. Again, look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. The second thing, we were living in sin, but now we're living in good works. Verse 1 says that we were, it uses the term walk. Paul does this a lot, walk. The idea is we continually repeating something. You're living, it's kind of like you're, you're living dead, you're living in sin. It's sin characterized us. Even your good work. If you think about this, you think, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me that people that know the Lord can't do good things? You have the, the Bible does say, you know, it credits good works to people who sometimes who don't know the Lord yet. But, but the only problem is those good works have no merit, no saving merit. They're recognized as morally good, but they have no saving merit because the person who's not in Christ his good works are actually, the Bible says in some places, their sin because they're ungodly. So even if I, if I say I'm doing a good thing, what if I told you, hey, I'm doing a good thing today and I did it on my own and I didn't need God's help? You would go, whoa, 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 lightning rod up. You know, he's the, the guy's going to get hit for saying that. That isn't good, right? You would say, that's not true, right? That's ungodly. Get it? It's ungodly. That's me saying I can do good without God's help and that would be a great error and that would be in sin, get that? We were, we were living in sin. Now, though, we're living in good works. If you'll notice in verse 1 and verse 10, the brackets of the passage, one is, you were dead in trespasses of sin in which you once walked. You repeatedly did that. But you get to the end and it says, we're his workmanship, we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God pre pre prepared beforehand that we should what? Verse 10, walk in them. You see that? This is what you're walking in, and now that's what you're walking in. This is what characterized you before. Now this, this is more than turning over a new leaf. This is a miracle of the new birth. This is a miracle of regeneration. This is God giving life to us when we believe and trust in him. And instead of walking in sin, we're now we're walking in, in good works. Verse 7 says that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Think about that. There are ages to come. There are ages to come. 
There are times to come. There's a, there's a tribulation to come, I believe. There's a, there's a millennial reign to come. There's an eternal state to come. And the ages to come, what's he going to do? He's going to be showing the riches of his grace. You ever hear an old-timer say the trophies of his grace? You ever hear an old-timer say that he's just a trophy of God's grace? To, to us young people, like, oh, you, you see these dusty plastic things in some old wannabe athlete's basement. You know, that's not what it is. This is the God of the universe saying, I'm going to take that broken sinner who's totally dead, and I'm going to perform such a life on him that in the ages, in the rolling ages to come, I'm going to be going, you see him? You see Wayne Adams? He's a trophy of my grace. I just happened to see you down there, Wayne. He's a trophy of my grace. Look at him. Look what God did. Look at the heart God put in him. And he, he looks good now. But when he's in glory, he really will look good. He really will look good. So will you. Can you imagine us through the rolling ages being the trophies of God's grace? You ever see an old athlete that plays a game and then he relives the game for years after that? We do that with our family football game at Thanksgiving. We seriously do that. None of us are athletes. So when we're all together, we look pretty good, right? And then we go in and we eat, and then we talk about the game as if it mattered, you know. Did you remember that? And you threw, and I caught, and I scored. It was amazing. Remember that? You did that? And you relive that? Um, uh, you remember the song that we some, sometimes sing, retelling the triumphs of his grace? That's what God wants to do throughout the rolling ages to come rehearsing the immeasurable riches of his grace, which are you and me, because we're broken, dead, lost sinners who hated God, and he redeemed us, and he gave us life, and throughout the rolling ages, look what I did. Look at this guy over here. Look at this sister over here. She's my trophy. She's my trophy. That's what the Bible says. That's like, that's like a buffet of truth right there. Isn't that great? So we, have, we, have, we were living in sin, and now we're living in good works. And then we were worldly-minded, but now we're spiritually-minded. Then all we saw was this, this, what was right in front of us. And that was everything. That broke our hearts. That made us happy. That's what we worked for. All of a sudden, we were saved. We're over the reality of the spirit world. Like, all oh, the are open to the reality of eternity. I think of this often. We, we laid to rest Charles Jubinville this week, one of our members. That's a hard thing to do. He, he should have lived longer, right? Should have been older. I catch myself going, do I believe that I believe that a man who dies in the faith like Charles did bursts into the glory of heaven to live forever and forever and forever and to enjoy the presence of God and those who have gone on before him? Do I believe that? Yes, when I'm saved, God opens my eyes to that. And therefore, I don't sorrow as others who have no hope. I grieve because we miss him. But I'm like, but he, and, and if I have, if I win my, temporarily, my bout, you know, with cancer, if I would have that, and, and have a few more years of life, of, of course, we're grateful. If, however, God calls me home, he calls me to himself. He calls me to glory. He calls me to my reward. I have eternal life. That Believers have the hope of eternal life. We are not worldly, we are otherworldly people. It's, it makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference the way you live if you're spiritually minded and not worldly minded. Then we're under an evil ruler before we knew the Lord, but now we have the life of Christ. That would be number four. We're under an evil ruler before we knew the Lord. That's why we're under the power of the prince of the power of the air. So go to number four there. Yeah, we were under an evil ruler. Now what are we? We have the life of Christ in us. Look in five and six. When we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Saved us by grace. Paul loves to throw that in there. Raised us up with him. Seated us in the heavenly places. 
So before, whether you knew it or not, you really were on the spiritual Titanic. You really were the walking dead. It really was a zombie apocalypse. You were living it. You were living it. Not now. Now you burst into fresh new life. In other words, if we could see who you really were in the spirit before you knew the Lord, it would be a very ugly creature, a very deadly, ugly creature. Now today, if we could see who you are in Christ, it would be like, it would be like, oh, it would be like I see God all over this guy. This is a beautiful thing. We have the life of Christ. No longer are we under an evil ruler, but we're animated by the life of Christ in us. He's the one that tells us, hey, you forgive that guy who hurt you. And you just say, yes, sir. Yes, sir, you're my God. For some reason, that's inexplicable. I can do that, and I will. You love that person who hurt you. Okay, I will love that person who hurt me because the life of God is in me now. I'm under the control of an evil, I'm under the dictates of an evil, despotic dictator, Satan, and his demons, because the power of God is on my life, I can't obey God, because he's empowered me to obey him. That's what the Bible says, that's an amazing thing. This is a, a beautiful thing. Then we were driven by our sin nature, but now we're under the mercy of God. Now we're under the mercy of God. It's a beautiful, look at, look at verse three there. It says, among whom we're all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, do you have any trouble with that? You're like, you have this like tug on you to do things that are wrong that you know are wrong and you do them anyway and you, and you wish you hadn't. Anybody ever done that? <laughs> you didn't raise your hand. See, you just lied in church. That's so wrong. That's so wrong. We'll give you a chance to repent later and get right with the Lord for that. Yeah, no, of course we have. Why is that? Why do I have that downward talking about flesh? I hate that, you know? The Bible says in verse six that we're raised up with him, seated with him in the heavenly places. Just cheating a little bit, if we were to jump over to Romans 6, where Paul talks about this, he says the power to sanctify us or make us like Jesus and overcome our, the downward pull of our flesh is the same power that what? Do you remember? That raised Jesus Christ from the dead. The power that raised Jesus from the dead, he says, is the same power available to you and I to stop doing whatever we know we should not do I'm not naming anything today. I'm asking the Holy Spirit to call you out, you know, or to start doing what we should have been doing that we weren't doing, not naming anything. Let the Holy Spirit tell you whatever that is that you haven't been doing that you should be doing or that you should be doing that you aren't doing. <laughs> the Spirit of God can do that, right? You know, you know. You say, I can't win. Yes, you can. You are not under the dictates of the devil. You are not driven by your sin nature now. You're not, you're not under the dictates of your indwelling sin. You are seated with Christ and this is a favorite of mine. Look at number six there. This is a favorite of mine. We were, I love this, we were under the wrath and now we're under the mercy. Can I get an amen? Just say amen to that. That's fun to say, isn't it? You were under the, I know you say, like you were under the wrath of God. Now you're under the mercy of God. Okay, this is why you want to, guys, listen, this is why you don't just want to be a religious churchgoer. Because if you are just a religious churchgoer, then all that other stuff is true about you, but none of this good stuff is true about you. You just, you just go to church now. Now you're pretty, you know, you don't, you don't want to turn over a new leaf. Conversion is not turning over a new leaf. That'll never work, right? Like, that'll work about as well as your New Year's resolution, which you already stopped doing, right? Am I right? Am I right? Yeah. So that's not going to work. What you need is God to do something. Amen? What you need is a miracle. What you need is God to come in you and make you a different person. You need to be converted. You need to be totally changed. You need to be transformed. Then, instead of being under the just weight of God's wrath, which you deserve and I deserve, or God isn't holy, 
We move under the mercy of God and we live under the mercy of God. If you ever got an email from me, at the end it says what? Under the mercy. That's Ken Pierpont. I'm like, I'm a sinner and I'm ashamed, but I'm living under the mercy. I'm going under the mercy. I know that God is merciful. I have claimed this amazing, unbelievable, is this story true? I can't believe it. I'm there. I'm under the mercy because of Jesus. And when I go flying up to heaven, I'm going to be saying, under the mercy, I'm under the mercy, have mercy. They say, we've been having mercy on you for your whole entire life. That's so, that's so beautiful. And here's number seven. We, we were in bondage to works, and now we're gifted to eternal life. Uh, you, you know, there in verse uh, and there, in, it's in verse um, 5 and then verse 8, he mentions that, by grace you've been saved. And then verse 8, by grace you're saved through faith. In Hebrews, the Bible, sometimes, Jesus is called lots of things. In Hebrews, he's called our older brother. I kind of like that. I never had an older brother. I wish I'd had one. Could have used an older brother a few times. I tried to be a good older brother. Sometimes I was. Sometimes not so much. But Jesus is my older brother, the Bible says. Heard about uh, two boys that were trapped down Louisiana in a flood, and the, and the sand turned to quicksand, and they're both getting pulled into this, and they, and they put out a distress signal, and the, and the rescue workers came, and when they came, they only found one of the boys. And he was standing in the quicksand, it was up to his neck, and they rescued him and said, where's your brother? He said, I'm standing on his shoulders right now. Jesus, our older brother, rescued us from the certain death of sin. That should make your heart beat fast with love for him. That should make you want to give the store. That should make you want to live a holy life. My older brother, he allowed himself to be put on the cross for me, Jesus. He died for by grace I am saved through faith. That's not my works. That's the gift of God. Don't you love that? Did you tell anybody that this week? Did you pray for anybody that they would get that story this week? Did you get a chance to talk about Jesus this week? Did you worship him because that was true this week? Did, is your heart still beating fast because of amazing grace? Is grace still amazing to you? That's what we're talking about. This is crazy good stuff, right? We were under the wrath. And then we were subject to our sin nature, but now we're saved by grace. And number eight, we were in bondage to works, but now we're gifted with eternal life for by grace. Let's just read it again because it's so much fun. So that in the coming, verse 7, so in the coming ages, in the rolling ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us, that he would use us as a trophy of his grace, reciting the triumphs of his grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Did you ever notice this, this whole passage talks about God, 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 and all that God did. And it's really hard to find anything you do in this passage. It's, it's, it's indirect what you do. It's not even directly stated. It's indirectly stated here. For a reason, Paul knew what he's doing. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is all of grace. It's an act of God. He's drawing, chooses, drawing us to himself. And what do we do? By, by, we're saved by grace, which is a gift of God, through faith. So when I have faith, when you have faith, in other words, when you put confidence or trust in Jesus' work or his death on the cross, his burial and resurrection, that's the part, if you will, that's the part you do. It's, it's God, God gifts us with salvation and does all the work and we say, okay, I trust you. Somebody says, no, 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 thanks, I will work hard. I, I wouldn't do that if I were you. you. You're not as good as you think you are. That's not a good idea. 
You hear about the plane that crashed 1,000 miles from shore, right? I'm making this up. Plane crashes 1,000 miles from shore. You have an Olympic swimmer. You have an elderly guy. You have a teenage kid, you know? The elderly guy is going to swim 100 yards and die. Teenage kid going to swim farther and die. The, the Olympic swimmer may swim 25 miles, and then he's going to what? Going to die. That's you. That's me. Like, we're on the spiritual Titanic without Christ. It's going down. We're all going to perish. Nobody can swim 1,000 miles, right? We, some are worse sinner than others. You look at another person that's not as good a swimmer as you are, but none of you are going to swim to heaven, right? That's the idea here. And that is then we throw ourselves on the grace of God. We are not in bondage to works. Get this now. We are not in bondage to works. Praise be unto God. That's true in our salvation. That's even true in our sanctification. We work, but it's the Spirit who empowers our work in sanctification to make us more like Christ. It's not a self-effort thing for salvation or sanctification, even though there's an element of self-effort and sanctification, it's spirit-empowered self-effort, if that makes any sense to you. And so we just the people that are going, man, I am thrilled with the grace of God. Look at this, look at this slide. This is our hope. This is our message. This is our mission. Why would we preach this stuff? Why is this important? I jotted this down. Number one, so we can tell truth to our own hearts so that we live in continual spiritual enlightenment and freedom. Why did I just tell you the gospel again and you liked it? Because Even though you heard it before, you said, I knew all that. I know, right? But you needed to tell yourself that, right? You, 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 you may have sinned recently. And so you're like, oh, I sinned. I think I'm going to go to hell. Like, you need to read this passage again. Because that's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says, if you are in Christ, praise be unto God. Like John says, I, I say to you, little children, don't sin, but if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the payment, the propitiation for your sin, and the sin of the whole world. Anybody who gets saved, that's how they get saved. Nobody gets saved outside of Jesus stepping between them and God's just wrath upon them. Praise God. That's you. That's me. So that should, that should make us worship. That's why I think we, we arrange these corporate worship services. These are no small thing. We arrange these corporate wor worship services very very, very, they're very serious. God's called us to do this. So all week long, you certainly should worship on your own. You should worship God in your truck, in your car. But the Bible teaches that when the saints gather in an assembly like this, God promises a special manifestation of himself, which in the Bible is called glory. And, and you will notice if you watch, people that live effective Christian lives are not just people who occupy a beauty, right? But they're ones who come to worship him. And they come faithfully to do that, and God works in their life. You can see this over the years as a pastor. You can see it. People, you, you, you look at a person with grace and poise and Christian maturity, and you think, how did that happen? Were they born like that? No, they weren't born like that. So they have personal qualities that are appealing, but God makes people like that. You got, want God to make you like that? I want God to make me like that. I don't want to be a crabby old guy. I want, to be a, I want the sweetness of Jesus to be on me. When I, when I die, I don't want my wife to, to celebrate. I want her to mourn a little bit and then be happy. I want her to go, the guy was good to me because Jesus was in him and he was getting better and better, right? I don't, I don't want people who know me to say, I, I, I looked really close to find Jesus, but it was really hard to see, right? And you, you're the same way, am I right? Well, then worship and this, but go back and tell the truth of the gospel to yourself every day so you don't get on the hamster wheel of works again, right? You need that so that you'll keep worshiping. A second reason is because our souls will be a continual state of worship because our hearts need that. 
And so that was two things. And the third thing is this. We have a mission. And what is our mission? It's to give the gospel, which we just taught today. That's your mission. So you want to be good at your mission. You want to be, able, you want to be good at explaining it. Charles Spurgeon was a great English Baptist pastor, and his grandfather was a pastor. And Spurgeon was late one day to preach, and his grandfather was there. And so Spurgeon's grandfather got up, and he took the text that we have today in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9, and Spurgeon's grandfather began to preach the gospel. And then finally the door opened, and then young Spurgeon walks in, and the grandfather stops, and he goes, here's my grandson, and he preaches the gospel better than me. But then he goes, you can preach the gospel better, but you can't preach a better gospel, can you? And Spurgeon, the younger Spurgeon, steps up and says, no, I could never preach a better gospel. And, and young Spurgeon begins to preach the gospel from this text and about the grace of God. And he hears his grandfather behind him going, tell him that again, Charles. Tell him that again. Tell him that again. Spurgeon said until he was an old man, whenever he would go to this text, even after his grandfather was dead, he would hear his voice in the back of his mind going, tell him again, tell him again, tell him that again. That's a story that we can tell people and their lives will be totally changed. How cool is that? Kid in my high school, I remember this kid named Jim. Kid named Jim. And he was rough. And he's smoking pot out back and just rough kid. He had a rough background. Jim's dad uh, and mom split up and Jim's stepdad beat him and beat his sisters and abused them just terribly. The parents decided they would put him in a home, and the grandparents came in and rescued him. And that's how I met Jim, because he moved to Gettysburg, Ohio, and he went to Greenville High School with me. A girl one day invited him. He, was, he, he went to church, but it was a church that didn't make the gospel claim. It's a do-gooder kind of a religious kind of a thing. And so he did that, but it didn't mean anything to him too much. It certainly didn't, he didn't get the gospel, the, the, the transforming gospel, you know. And a girl invited him to Faith Baptist Church in Greenville, where I went there. And the second Sunday he was there, somebody made the gospel really, really plain to him. And Jim got saved. Totally changed his life. Now, there weren't like, there, there were, he would tell you there were some setbacks and stuff, but he, he was on track. God, the gospel, the religious thing did not change his life. The pot didn't do for him what Jesus could do for him, right? If you've done that, you know what I'm talking about, right? But the gospel totally changed his life. Totally changed his life. As a matter of fact, Jim is a pastor today in Ohio. Because everybody doesn't get to pastor in Michigan. He had to go there, you know. He's a pastor in Ohio. He married my sister Melanie. They have 11 kids. <laughs> 20 grandkids. And they're trying to make their mark in the world. Who did you tell about Jesus? And what would happen if nobody had ever told you about Jesus? The gospel, we go over the gospel because it's, it's, it's good for our growth. We go over the gospel because it stimulates our worship. We go over the gospel because it's our mission, right? It's our hope. It's our message. It's our mission. We want to read it. We want to know it. We want to explain it to other people. There's a movie out called uh, The Resurrection of Gavin Stone. It's a Christian movie. We got to see it on Friday. Um, what a great Christian movie. Well done. You know, you laugh, you cry. There's a little romance in there. There's some plot twists and some neat stuff. And, and I just thought about that when I was watching. I thought, what a great vehicle. When we're doing the pray, love, invite, gospel conversation, there's an, there's an example 
you can invite somebody to that movie and then see if they're open to a gospel conversation afterward. You see what I mean? How simple is that? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this tremendous text of Scripture. What a blessing it is just to read the gospel in all that we were before and who we are now in Christ. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I'm sure there are those here who, like the first screen described you, but the other things didn't describe you yet. You get it? So if you're here today, I'm, I want to ask you personal questions so that I'm really direct. I don't want to be the kind of religious church where you can't get saved. I want to be the kind of church where a person can get saved and know it. How many of you would say, and I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, I, w- I, I need to know I'm a Christian. I'm not sure that I'm a Christian, and I really want to know that I'm a Christian. Raise your hand up really high right now. Anybody? I'm just going to be real direct. Anybody like that? Anybody? Okay, thank you. Anybody else? Okay, thank you. Anybody else? Okay, here's what we're going to do today. If you raised your hand, or if you didn't, and your heart, uh, you need to know the Lord. I, I normally greet folks outside, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stay right here. I want you to come up and see me. Just come and see me. After we sing this beautiful gospel song, come and see me. And then when you do, I'll have somebody explain to you, or I'll explain to you how to be saved, lead you actually in prayer to receive Christ as your Savior today, right now. While we're singing the song, you can come, or you can wait to talk to her and you come. I just got down here out of the lights, and I, I saw we have with us folks that are brand new Christians, folks that just lost their loved ones, folks that are struggling with every imaginable kind of thing. So don't rush away, but look around, see who you can encourage, all right? Now stand with us as we sing this beautiful song that really reiterates what we just taught.